Father, we just thank you for the season, the, the day that uh, we remember today, Palm Sunday, and the great hope that uh, was shown that day you marched into Jerusalem and the people were declaring you as king. And Lord, but, but that wasn't the real hope. The real hope was, was the next week when you died on a cross for our sins. And, and then on the third day, you were raised from the grave. But Lord, that's not our only hope. Uh, we're looking forward to the next great event. And that's uh, when you come back to, to receive your church in the air and take us to be with you. And then you come to rule and reign on this earth, Lord. We have so much hope. And uh, Lord, we want you to, to just uh, use this book to reinforce our hope, to, to help us to uh, establish our theology as far as eschatology goes, the end times, Lord. And as we uh, use these few books to get ready to go into the book of Revelation and, and we see this great uh, revealing of who you are and what your plans are for this earth and for us. And Lord, so we just have so much hope as we come to this season and, and it's all because of you, Lord. There's no hope without you. And so we just are so grateful for, for all the promises that you give us. And Lord, uh, because of that gratitude, we want to serve you. We want to worship you. We want to be attentive to your word, and we want to learn your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I just ask today, Lord, that you, you, you be our teacher and as we look at this little book and, and uh, uh, just help us to glean the truths out of here you would have us to learn. We just ask all of that in Christ's name. Amen. George Bernard Shaw, who was perhaps the greatest polemist of all time, at the time of his death, the last few days, in one of his last writings, uh, listen to what he had to say about his atheism. He said this, he says, The science to which I pin my faith is bankrupt. Its counsels, which should have established the millennium, led instead directly to the suicide of Europe. I believed them once. In their name, I helped destroy the faith of millions of worshipers. And now they look at me and witness the great tragedy of an atheist who has lost his faith. Why did George Bernard Shaw lose his faith and his atheism? Because he had lost his hope. It, hope in anything that's not true. Hope in anything that's not real, hope that doesn't work, hope that doesn't profit you in your life is no hope at all, and that's what he found out. The reason that I've been a believer for 28 years, and I'm going to be a believer forever, is because my hope is real. My hope is based upon truth. My hope works in my life. It's been proven in my life. It's been proven to be profitable in my life. And I profit greatly from it. And the best things are yet to come. And I know that. I know one day at any moment, the trumpet is going to sound and the Lord is going to return for his church. And then the world is going to go into the great tribulation. And then we are going to come back to this earth and rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years and then live with him forever. That's my great hope. I have hope 
in the rapture. I believe in the rapture. Now, I know some of you might not believe in the rapture. I know there are a lot of people who don't believe in the rapture and people who call themselves Christians who don't believe in the rapture. I had a lady who called me about a month ago, and uh, when I answered the phone, she said she had seen our sign, and uh, she was excited that we were a Bible church, and, and uh, she was interested in coming, and she wanted to know a little bit about our doctrine, and she asked me about our doctrine, and I said, well, if you want to know our doctrine, let me tell you what you do. You get your Bible, and you read Genesis to, to Revelation, because that's where we get our doctrine. We're a Bible church, and we believe the, every word of this Bible. And she said, well, that's great. But she says, there's a doctrine that is of supreme importance to me, and I need to know how you believe on this doctrine before I'm going to come to this church. And I said, what doctrine is that? And she said, the flyaway doctrine. And I said, well, I guess by the flyaway doctrine, you're speaking of the rapture. And she said, yes, what do you believe about the rapture? And I said, I believe the church will be raptured out of here before the great tribulation begins. I believe that with, with, with all my heart. And she said, well, I hate to tell you, but you, you realize you're in error. And she began to give me the canned arguments that I've heard over and over again of why people don't believe in the rapture. I mean, she said that none of the early church fathers believed in the rapture. You don't hear anything about the rapture uh, from the early church fathers. The, rapture, the word rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. She says it was invented by uh, John Darby in, in 1830. I've heard all of these things before. It wasn't new to me. But then she said, and I want to tell you this, in Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 20, it's very clear that if you teach about the rapture, you're a false teacher and a heretic, and you are condemned by God. Well, she riled me up a little bit then, so kind of changed the conversation. I said, lady, I know that verse, and you're taking Ezekiel 13, 20 totally out of context. And not only are you taking it out of context, you're making your own interpretation of the verse, because that's not the way you interpret that verse. In Ezekiel chapter 13, the prophet was speaking against false teachers who were telling the Israelites that they were, they were going to have peace when there was no peace. They, were, they, were trying to, they weren't warning them of the danger that was coming. And what God says in Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 20, basically, and it depends on how you interpret the verse or what, how you interpret the Hebrew of the verse, but basically what he said was, I'm going to release my remnant from the claws of these teachers and they're going to fly away. And that's, that's what it's about. It's not about the rapture at all. And I told the lady, I said, that's like going over to Jeremiah chapter 10 and saying that you can't have a Christmas tree. And then she said, well, I don't believe in Christmas trees either. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, well, I'll tell you what, you probably don't want to come to our church because on Christmas, we put a Christmas tree up on the stage. And before the service, the worship team goes up there and bows before the Christmas tree. And, we, and like in Jeremiah 10, we, have, we hang Asherahs up there in Baal and all sorts of idols up there, and they bow. So you, you probably don't want to come to our church. Click. End of conversations. So I don't expect to see that lady here anytime soon. But the lady did me a favor. And let me explain to you why she did me a favor, because she convinced me that it was very important, before we go into the book of Revelation, 
that we get a clear understanding about the rapture. Is there a rapture? I mean, is there such a thing as a rapture? Did the early church fathers teach about the rapture? Did Jesus teach about the rapture? Did Paul teach about the rapture? Does the word rapture appear in the Bible? I mean, because the rapture, depending on what you believe about the rapture and what you believe about the tribulation, it, it filters, yeah, I want to say it filters everything you believe or it filters the way you interpret the book of Revelation. Because it's like you put on these glasses. If you've got this, these glasses where you believe you're going to go through the great tribulation, you're going to interpret it a certain way. If you believe in the rapture, you're going to interpret it another way. I believe interpreting literally. And, and I believe if you interpret it literally, I think you're going to see the rapture in the book of Revelation. And I have no doubt that uh, Paul speaks of the rapture. I have no doubt that the other apostles believed of the, in the rapture. I have no doubt that Jesus Christ taught the rapture. And I'll show you that when we get to that. And I can show you where the church fathers in the first and second century, all of them, most of them believed in a rapture. Now, there were some that didn't. But most of them believed that there would be a rapture of the church before the great tribulation. So whether you're pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or all millennials or whatever, we want to get all of that straight because we want to have a correct interpretation of the book of Revelation. I can tell you right now, when I first got saved, I believed the church would go through the, through, through the great tribulation. I didn't believe in the rapture. But the more and more I study this Bible, and I've been studying it for 28 years now, the more I am absolutely convinced, I am absolutely convinced that we will be out of here before the great tribulation begins. Now, could that be mid-trib? Yes. Because, the, the, because it, when we get to the revelation, we're going to see that the wrath of God on this earth doesn't come to the middle of the great tribulation. And so I believe we'll be out of here before the wrath of God comes upon this earth. Because we're, you, you can see it right here in the first part of Thessalonians. I mean, you can jump down to verse number uh, 10. And it says, and to, to wait for him... It, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're not going to experience the wrath of God. So, so I have a real hope in the rapture. And, and, and man, I'm not hoping to go through the great tribulation. You're an idiot if you're hoping to go through the great tribulation. I'm not saying you're an idiot if you believe you're going to go through it. But if that's your hope, man, that's not much of a hope. I challenge you to read the middle of the book of Revelation and, and read the prophets about what it has to say about the great tribulation. You don't want to be here, and, and you're not going to be here. And I think the book is clear, and that's why I wanted us to, to at least go through these uh, two books of First and Second Thessalonians before we got to Revelation. Somehow, through our verse-by-verse -verse study, uh, we miss going through these books, so, so I want to pick them up. And, and there's just a lot of good stuff here, too, and, and it'll help us prepare us for that study. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, first, the first and Second Thessalonians uh, before we actually get into the meat of it. Uh, basically, if you remember, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, Paul had gone to Thessalonica, and he only stayed there, we're told very clearly, three Sabbaths. He stayed there three weeks. And in those three weeks, him and Timothy and Silvanus started the church at Thessalonica. And he left, and the church flourished. 
I mean, Paul was run out of town. There was all sorts of persecution against him and that little church. But what did that persecution do for that church? It made that church absolutely boom. And it was flourishing. And so uh, Paul sends Timothy and Silvanus over to the church to help them out. And when he's in Corinth, and this is around 51 AD, he sits down. Timothy comes back. He gives him a great report about what's going on in the church. And he comes back and he writes this letter. Well, when Timothy and Paul are talking about what's going on there, they're going through this persecution. The church is growing. They're growing in Christ. But they've got some problems. Some things have happened that really have messed up their theology. You've got to remember, they didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have all of the, the, the New Testament. They had little pieces of letters and they had the Old Testament. But they didn't have the New Testament. So they had some theological eschatology. Theological questions. They thought, some of them thought they were actually going through the Great Tribulation. And so Paul's got to answer that. You know, are, are you really going through the Great Tribulation? Some of the believers at Thessalonica had died and Christ hadn't returned, so they had never been taught what happens to a believer if, 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 you're, if you die before Christ returns. Because the hope that the apostles preached was the second coming of Christ. And he hadn't returned, and some of the believers had died, and so they wanted to know what happens to them. And then the third thing that they, that they wanted to know was, how are they going to live through this great through this time? I mean, through, before Christ returned, what were they supposed to do? Were they supposed to sell all their goods and go, go uh, live in a commune somewhere and just wait for the coming of the Lord? What were they to do uh, in the meantime while they waited on the rapture of the church? And so Paul directs these eschatological questions. Uh, he direct, directs, looks at these questions, and he answers these questions in these two little letters. And it's great for us because it gives us all sorts of information about the end times. And it'll, like I say, it'll really help us when uh, uh, we get to the book of Revelation. So he writes this letter to give them clarity. He writes it to commend the church. I mean, you read the book of Galatians, and man, he's tough on the Galatians. You read the book of Corinthians, he's tough on the Corinthians. But he was very well pleased with what was going on at Thessalonica. And so he writes the letter to commend them and to give them clarity and to remind them of their hope, of their great hope for a future in Jesus Christ. And that hope begins with the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to get to as we, we won't get there today, but uh, as he goes through this, these two little letters here. But let's pick up in verse number one. First Thessalonians, uh, verse number one. And listen to what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now Paul's the one writing the letter, but he adds them because they knew Silvanus and Timothy well because they had worked there at the church. So Paul writes this letter in 51 AD, and, and in his salutation, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that's really a poor translation there, because if you were to look at that literally in the Greek, that last part isn't there. It just, it ends with peace. Basically, what he says in verse number one, he says, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father 
and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends it there. Great, or no, he does. He says, grace to you and peace. And it ends right there. And, and the other part isn't there. Now, now, that's really important because the emphasis here is this, that grace and peace come to us when we are in God the Father. How are we in God the Father? And we're going to see this in a little more detail in, in the third verse. But how are we in God the Father? When we are in Jesus Christ. When you are in Jesus Christ, you are in God the Father. And the more you are in Christ, the more you're in the Father, and the more you have grace and peace. Your grace and peace comes in direct proportion to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the greater your relationship is with Jesus Christ, the more you're in Christ, the more you're in the Father. It's in the Father that you have grace, and it's in the Father that you have peace. If you have the grace of God, you've got the peace of God. So if you don't have any peace, the reason you don't have any peace is because you're not living in Christ. Now, I think you can be a born-again believer and not live in Christ. You know, you can be a born-again believer and live totally for yourself. And if you live totally for yourself, you're not going to receive the grace that God wants to give you. You're going to have to. Your only hope is the rapture. You're going to live a miserable life. And so you want to do everything you can to be in Christ. Now, we're in Christ. We're in Christ when we're born again. Man, we're in Christ when we're born again. But you want to be, you want to work to be in Christ all the time. And I can't emphasize that. I know from personal experience, and I bet you can give the same testimony, that the more I'm in Christ and the less I'm in myself and in this world, the more I, grace I have and the more peace I have. And here were these Thessalonians, and people were trying to destroy them because their faith in Jesus Christ. And what was it doing? What was it doing? It was driving them to Christ. And so they had great grace and great peace. So Paul says in verse number two, he says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Now that's a bad translation too, because it misses something. He says, we give thanks to God, to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers without ceasing. Now, the translators take that out because it's redundant. He says always and without ceasing. It's, that's the same thing. But it wasn't meant to be taken out. It was meant to be emphasized. Paul always gave thanks for the Thessalonians because of their faith. He, he made mention of them in his prayers without ceasing. Man, that's something else if you think about it. How many of y'all pray for me without ceasing? Well, I want you to start doing that. I want you to listen to this. You know what? We're called to pray for each other without ceasing. To pray always for each other. You remember what Jude said? Jude talk, spoke of praying in the Spirit. You know one of the ways you know you're praying in the Spirit is when you pray for people always. When you pray for people without ceasing, who puts on your heart the people you're to pray for? God does. And if you're not continuing in prayer for somebody, I can tell you right now, your prayers aren't in the Spirit. 
Because God's continuing to intercede for everyone, every believer on this earth and for probably every, every lost person on this earth. He's praying for them to get saved. And so we should be praying for each other without ceasing if we're praying in the Spirit. Remember we talked about praying in the Spirit. A lot of times our prayers, we go to our prayer closet and what's our prayers all about? Me, 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 me. And, they, and we know we're praying in the Spirit when we're worshiping God in our prayers and we're praying for others in our prayers. And we know we're, worshiping, we're praying in the Spirit when we don't give up in our prayers. You know, it's so easy to give up. Man, I'm going to pray for that person I met today. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for them that they get saved. Well, we call them the next day and they're not saved yet. Well, I ain't praying for them anymore. It won't work like that. We pray for them without ceasing. We're always praying for them. You should always be praying for your family members. You should always be praying for, for, for your church, for your pastor. You should always be praying for these things. I, you know, I mean, I, I really think it's important. We got these iPhones and these telephones, and you can do all sorts of neat things in them for God, believe it or not. And one of the things you can do, you can establish a prayer list. You can, you can put a reminder on your phone to pray for a person. And that reminder, have, have it pop up once a week. I mean, you shouldn't have to do that. Like I say, when you're praying in the Spirit, you, you go into the, your prayer closet and God puts these people on your heart. And here's Paul. He says, I'm always praying for these people. I don't ever quit praying for these people. I'm always praying for you guys. And his prayers were working because they were having great success and the church was growing and the church was thriving because of those prayers. Then he says in verse number three, he says, remembering without ceasing. I mean, here's that without ceasing again. Paul wasn't lying here because he was, he was or, and it wasn't hyperbole. I mean, he was, he was speaking by the Spirit of God. All scriptures inspired by God. And so he's speaking under the inspiration of God. He says, I remember them without ceasing. I, re, I remembering without ceasing. Watch this, and here's the three Christian graces right here in this, this uh, text. Faith, hope, and love. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, of our God and Father. Now, that's a perfect translation there. Let me read that to you again. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of the God and Father. See, Paul couldn't get these guys off his mind. The Lord wouldn't let him there. He only stayed there three weeks. And, and this amazing church was flourishing in the three Christian graces of faith, hope, and love. And Paul commends them for that. Now, the, let's look at each one of these graces. The first one, and, and the reason I want to look at them a little bit, we've talked about them before, but, but it's interesting the way they appear in this text. Look at the first one. The first grace that this young church was abounding in was what? The work of faith. Wait a minute, Paul. The work of faith. Well, isn't it Paul who said in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, 
That faith is a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. And now you're saying they are abounding in a work of faith? You're confusing us a little bit here, Paul. Didn't Jesus say in John 3, 16, for whosoever, uh, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish? He gave his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Believe? Wait a minute. You're saying it's a work, that faith is a work. Look, the faith is not a work when it comes to salvation. Faith is a gift. Your belief in Jesus Christ is a gift from God, given to you by the Spirit of God. The reason you came to a point in your life where you saw yourself as a wretched sinner in need of the cross, in need of the blood, and you understood that only the blood could save you, that was a gift of God. And it came by faith, having believed you were sealed with the Spirit. But listen to me. Faith doesn't end with salvation. It only begins. And faith in the promises of God determines how we live every bit of our Christian life. Every bit of our Christian life is based upon faith. Remember when the Jews asked Jesus, what must, we, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, that you believe on me. It's work to believe on Jesus Christ. The faith that leads to salvation is a gift, but after that, I mean, faith is our greatest work. It's our most important work. Faith precedes everything we do in our Christian life. What was the work that these Thessalonians were doing? Well, look down at, look down at um, verse number 9. He says in verse number 9, For they themselves declare concerning you, uh, concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turn from God, from, uh, turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. What was the work that the Thessalonians were doing? They were turning from their idols. Is that work? You better believe it's work. You better believe it's work. Is it work for you, I mean, to believe that you would be better off praying than watching TV? Yeah, that's work. Because your flesh wants to watch TV. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with watching TV, but if that's all you do, there's something wrong with it. At some point, you've got to put the TV set up and by faith, you say, I'm better off being with God than I am watching TV. And that's work. That takes faith. I mean, it takes faith to, to turn from idols. It takes faith to turn from humanism, from, from false religion. I mean, that lady that called me with her false teaching and was trying to get me to be, agree with her false doctrine, her problem was a lack of faith. In other words, she had been indoctrinated on a few verses, and she didn't want to do the work of faith. She didn't want to get into this Bible and understand this Bible or be indoctrinated by the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So you take all the verses in context. She didn't want to do that work of faith. And so 
most people don't want to do that work. If they so false religion, they, they, to, to come out of a false religion is work. It's a lot of work. It's a work of faith. To come out of humanism is a work of faith. It's a big work of faith. To come out of materialism. You talk about, you know, in our society, for you to be able to turn from materialism to worship the true and living God, that is a work of faith. It's a big work of faith. Look, there's nothing wrong with having material things. God wants us to have material things. But you've got to get it straight. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these material things will be added unto you. But we say, seek ye first the material things, and, and we'll give God the crumbs. It doesn't work like that. It's a work of faith to say, I'm going to seek God first. And then the material things will take care of themselves. I'm going to work at my faith. I'm going to work in believing that, that all things work together for me if, if, if I put the Lord first. And I'll tell you the toughest thing to turn from, the toughest thing to turn from is worship of self. To take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and serve the Lord. We worship self. We worship self, and it is a work of faith to worship God. It is a big work of faith to worship the true and living God. But that's what we have to do, and it takes an effort to do that. In fact, all our success in our Christian life is, is a work of faith. I mean, let me give you an example. How you raise your children is a work of faith. I mean, the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should grow, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, do you really believe that? If you really believe that, then you're going to train up a child in the way he should grow. And, 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 and that, that doesn't mean, I mean, it's okay to dedicate your baby or baptize your, I don't think it's okay to baptize your baby, but, but baptizing your baby or dedicating your baby isn't, a, isn't that work of faith. That work of faith is an everyday thing where you put Jesus at the center of, of your home life. And, and, and you believe that if I raise my child in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, if I take the time to give my child devotions, if I take my time to show my child that Jesus is, is the one who's guiding our family, the one who's guiding our lives, if I take my time to do that, then when he's old, he will not depart from it. It's a work of faith. It's not easy. It's a work of faith. The Bible says, spare the rod and spoil the child. Well, it takes faith to believe that because we live in a world where in some states you can go to jail for using the rod on your child. Let me tell you something. My boys never turned me in, but, but uh, that's what they would have had to do to get me to stop from using the rod because by faith, I believe that passage and I have seen it work. And I believe what's wrong with our society today is we believe the psychologists more than we believe God. And we've spared the rod and we've raised a bunch of brats. And, and we're, we've sown to the wind and we're reaping the whirlwind. So we believe the Bible. Look, if you want to have success in serving God and being obedient to God, it's a work of faith. It's a work of faith. Remember, the life lesson that Jesus gave over in Luke chapter 5, and when 
he told the disciples, and I'm reading from Luke 5, he told them to launch out into the deep and cast their nets that they might have a great catch of fish. And, and Peter said, Master, we've toiled all night and we've caught nothing. And, and what makes you think we're going to catch something now if we go out now? It was a work of faith. Nevertheless, Peter said, hey, Lord, if that's what you say to do, we're going to go out and do it. But it was a work of faith. And they went out into the deep and they cast their nets and they had toiled all night before and they hadn't had anything. And, 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 and it was a work of faith to believe the Lord. But they believed the Lord and they cast out their nets and they had a great catch. You know, if we're going to have success in our service to God and our obedience to God's calling, then we have to believe God when God asks us to do something that seemingly is impossible. We've got to believe God. It's work to believe God. It's work to believe that all things are possible with God. It's work to keep believing. You know, a lot of people believe in the front end. God will give them a call, and man, they'll be all excited about that call. But then they got, you know, years pass, and that call hasn't been fulfilled. And it's work to keep believing God and to finish what God has called you to start. It's, it's work to do something God calls you to do that doesn't make any sense, but it makes sense to God. And so by faith, you keep doing it and you don't quit. So we have, always have to be working to trust God if we want to succeed. The second grace that is mentioned right here in, in chapter, I mean, in verse number three of chapter number one is that the Thessalonians had plenty of was love. They had plenty of love. Look at what he says here. He called it the labor of love. And I said there were three graces, faith, hope, and love. He calls it the labor of love. Well, is it grace or is it labor? It's really both. It is a grace. And I'm not going to go into this in detail because we looked at this over and over and over again in 1 John, so I don't have to teach you this again. But basically what we learned in 1 John, if you've been born again, you've received the Spirit of God. Who is the Spirit of God? He is love. He is agape love. And so if you have the Spirit of God, you have agape love in you. And, and so the natural outflow of that new nature, which is love, is a labor of love. Listen, if you're not laboring in love as a natural outflow of what God's done in your heart, then you probably don't have, I can just say this, you don't have the Spirit of God. You know, if you can hate your neighbor, who you, it's really a labor to love, then you don't have the Spirit of God. Because if John says, how can you love the person who, God whom you haven't seen and hate the person, and, and uh, hate the person whom you have seen? Say you love God. So it's a labor of love. I mean, part of our... Uh, part of the, the graces that we receive from God is love. And our life should be full of love if we're born again believers. And then the third grace, and this marked the Thessalonians, it was their hope. They had a real hope. Listen to what he says in verse number three. He says, he says remembering without ceasing your work of faith your labor of love, and look at this, your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God 
the Father. You know, any real hope, if your hope is real, it is patient hope. Did you know that? It's patient hope. It, you're not doubtful. You don't fret over things because your hope is real. Now, if your hope's not real, people who call themselves Christians and they're always fretting over things, they really don't have a real hope. And hope hasn't penetrated their soul. When your hope is real, you're not fretting and doubting all the time. Now, you might sometimes. You can be pushed into a corner and, and you might doubt and you might fret. But if you're, if you're constantly doubting and fretting, I've got to tell you right now, your hope is not real. It's not real. Your faith is not real. Your hope is not real. Because if I really believe the promises of God, and I really believe they're true, then I'm willing to wait on those promises. I'm willing to rest in those promises. Remember the author of Hebrews, how critical he made uh, the activity of rest? He basically said, if you don't rest in God, you're basically like the Israelites who perished in the wilderness, and you're going to perish too, the same way, laws. At some point, you've got to believe you, the you, you, the work of faith, you've got to keep believing. And when you believe, you have hope because there's so much hope in the promises of God. And so you rest in those promises. That's why Paul says I, of the Thessalonians, you have a patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this. In the sight of the Father. Where's your patience? in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of the Father. Now, why does he say here, in the sight of the Father? Because what Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know, the same thing he wants us to know, and that is this, that nothing pleases God the Father more than for us to put our hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing pleases him more than that. Nothing pleases him more than that. You remember the story on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Moses and Elijah and Jesus appeared on that mount in their glorified bodies. And they were shining. I mean, Jesus, God, Moses and Elijah, and they all looked the same. I mean, in his glory and beauty and Peter, you know, Peter always going to stick his foot in his mouth. And Peter said, Lord, it's good to be here. Let us build three tabernacles. I mean, three places of worship. I mean, we're going to worship you. We're going to worship Elijah. We're going to worship Moses. We just hang out here for a long time. We really, we really like this. And a voice came out of heaven. And I'll give you my translation. Shut up, Peter. You don't know what you're saying. Listen to him. Listen to my beloved son. Now, that statement is astounding to me, not because Peter was rebuked for putting Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. Let me tell you why that statement was astounding to me. When God the Father said, listen to Jesus, that's astounding. Because I would have thought if my theology was bad, and like some people's theologies who are hyper 
Trinitarians, their theology is bad, that he would have said, listen to me first, and second, listen to my son. He doesn't say that. He said, this is my beloved son, hear him. He didn't say, hear me. He said, hear him. You know why God put it that way? Let me tell you why God put it that way. Because Jesus and the Father are one. We come to the Father through Jesus Christ. Through his words. That's why he's called the Logos. That's why he's called the Word of God. We come to the Father through his sacrifice on the cross for our sin. The way we know the Father is through the Son. That's why it's pleasing in the sight of God when we worship Jesus. Because when we worship Jesus, who are we worshiping? We're worshiping God the Father. The best possible way we can worship God the Father is by worshiping the Son. It's the only way we can worship God the Father. Because we are humans. And God became a human. So we could worship Him with our ears and with our eyes and with all of our being. We worship. We can't worship God to God. You know why we can't worship God to God? Because we're not God's. You could never worship God to God. But but as a human being, we can worship the God-man, Jesus Christ. And when we worship the God-man, Jesus Christ, we're worshiping the Father. And that's why God says, listen to him, worship to him, talk to him. Because when you're talking to him and you're worshiping him, you're worshiping me. When you get to heaven... And you'll see a little bit of heaven in the book of Revelation when we finally get there one day, if you make it. You won't see three gods there like a lot of people teach. You won't see God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. You won't see three gods there. I'll tell you who you'll see. You'll see one God, the great I Am, Jesus Christ. And if you're stupid enough, To ask Jesus, where's the Father? You know what he's going to tell you? He's going to tell you the same thing he told Philip. Have I been with you so long that you don't even know who I am? He who sees me sees the Father. One day in glory, you talk about a hope. One day in glory, when we see Jesus, and we touch Jesus, we are touching the Father. We're touching the God, man to God, man to the God-man. That's how we worship. And when you put your faith in Jesus, totally put your faith in Jesus, the Father Anywhere else, all this other garbage about people say there's other ways to heaven. God is not well pleased with anything but anyone but you. There's no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ.
Now, as we finish up here, and before we head a little further into the text next week, I think it'd be a good idea for everybody to just ponder this question. You know, where's my hope? Where do I have my hope? Let me add a question to that. Is my hope real? Is my hope real? You know, there's a lot of people that talk the talk. They might even walk the walk, but they really don't have a real hope. Their hope isn't real because they haven't been born again. And, and, and I think as believers, sometimes we put our, we, we're still putting our hope in the wrong thing. I mean, we put our hope in our personal plans. I mean, I mean, I'm planning on being here one day. I'm planning on doing this one day. Any plan outside the calling of God is fleeting. You don't know what's going to happen to you in the future. We put our hope in our job. Man, I've got a really good job, and I, I, you know, I'm just counting on that job. I'm gonna, I know I'm going to. Man, you're going to lose that job tomorrow, just like that. Jobs come and they go. Well, pastor, I got my hope in my money. I got lots of money. You know what money is? You know what money is? I want you to take that money out and you look at it real carefully. That money is nothing but paper. Today it has some buying power. It can get you a few things. Less things than it would have got you last year. But it is paper. It is nothing but paper. It's a shallow thing to put your hope in. And it could be all gone tomorrow. Well, Pastor, wait a minute. I've got my bank account. Well, I challenge you to go down to the bank tomorrow where you do your banking and say, would you pull out my account and let me see my money? You know what your bank account is? It's an electronic number. You don't have anything. If the government decides to end your bank account tomorrow, it's gone. It's a shallow place to be putting your hope. Well, Pastor, I, I'm an American. And boy, we got this Donald Trump now as president. <laughs> That's something I got to tell you. I, I remember when Barack Obama was, became president, there were so many people who said, oh, man, I've got a hope now. Hope and change was his motto. Some lot of change, but no hope. But I don't know, you know, it's going to be much better with Trump. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to get into politics here, but, I, you know, I, Obama's gone and Trump will be gone in a few years. If your hope is in your government, your hope is in the wrong place. Well, I've got my health. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a fleeting, fleeting thing. You know, anything we put our hope in in this temporal world is not going to last. The only real and lasting hope we have is the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And that hope is real to me. I don't know about you. It is real. He's made it real in my heart. And one day soon, you know what I'm hoping for? I'm not hoping for Trump to make this world better. I'm not hoping for 
the president after Trump to make this world better. I'm not hoping I get more money in my account or a better job. I'm not hoping for that. You know what I'm hoping for? I'm hoping to hear the trumpet and the Lord to call and take me up in there to be with him and finish this mess and for him to come back and rule and reign forever in righteousness. That is a real hope. That's the hope we're going to be looking at in the book of Thessalonians. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and and we thank you for uh, the hope we do have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the great event uh, that we celebrate this week of your death on a cross for every single one of our sins so that we do have a hope, Lord, a real hope. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that has come into our heart and made that hope real, Lord. But if there's somebody in this room here today who, who's thinking, well, that's, that's nice for you, but I don't feel that hope, Lord. I ask you to touch their heart and let them know that if, if they're willing to be obedient to your word, Lord, that you'll give them that real hope too. That lasting hope. Lord, and we thank you for what you've done and we thank you for the hope you give us of your soon return. Because, Lord, we live in a very dangerous, dark world. And we just ask for, for you to come as soon as possible, Lord. We know you're going to delay until you've saved every last soul you're going to save. But, but, Lord, we hope that's soon. We just thank you for the hope we have through Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.